Would you turn to Colossians chapter 2? We have finally finished chapter 1. Amen. Hallelujah. There's revival in in the place. So we'll find ourselves in chapter 2 and we'll be going through the first two verses, verse 1 and 2. We are making our way. We'll get there. We'll get there to the end, Lord willing. Um, Colossians chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. And the Word of God says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Now, needless to say, and I don't want to insult your uh, intelligence, but when Paul wrote this epistle, he didn't write four separate chapters. He wrote one letter with one theme. And that one theme that runs through the entire epistle You know, by the way, just let you know that chapters were only introduced 13, on the 13th century, but not at the beginning. Now, in fact, as, as you see that first word here in verse 1, 4, it's a connecting word, which means Paul is carrying over that same thought uh, from chapter 1 and without any interruptions, and he's continuing on with that same thought right through chapter 2. So um, it is crucial to do a review of what we've studied so far in chapter 1 so that this passage before us would make sense. And also, on top of that, uh, we need to be aware that there are many of us uh, here today that were not uh, with us at the beginning when we did the book of Colossians. And I want to be sensitive to that. And so for these reasons, please Allow me to do a a, a bigger review, a bird-eye view when I have a look at chapter 1, what we've learned so far from beginning till the end, and why Paul wrote this letter. Well, it was about 57 AD where false teachers have begun to creep into this little house church. The Church of Colossae were uh, worshipping the Lord together in a house, and there were surrounding churches as well. And those false teachers, those savage wolves, um, they began to dig in their claws and about to tear apart the flock in his church with their lies. Now, what are the lies of those false teachers that they were spreading? Well, the false teachers would say, well, you worship Jesus. Good for you. That's wonderful that you're worshiping him. Keep doing that. But you know something? Jesus is not enough. Come on, open your eyes. There is more in life than, than to worship this little puny savior of yours. What do you mean? 
Well, Jesus is just a, a limited angelic being. And you know what? There are more, thousands more of those angels. And the more angels you worship, the more you will get closer to um, perfection, if you like. Oh, really? Yes, really. There are ceremonial cleansing. There are tradition of man that you ought to follow if you ever want to be accepted by God the Father. So, why in the world would you ever want to limit yourself and fix your eyes upon this one person, Jesus Christ? Why would you want to do this? Ah, oh, we, we understand. We understand. You're just new in the faith. You're still young and immature. That's okay. You know, there is so much more philosophy of man to learn. Many, many more rules to follow. So you can be as holy as us. Now, may I add that this lie is not just limited to the false teachers at the time of Paul. All false religions have the same lie. In fact, I can go further and say that you can go and you can watch the TV and you won't be able to watch it for more than half an hour before we get bombarded with these lies. That, that Jesus is not enough to satisfy you. That Jesus is not enough to, to give you this inner peace that you need. Do you know what you need? You, you, need, a, you need a new phone. You, you need a bigger TV. Come on, that, that better couch. You need this better couch. You've got to follow the tradition of men and work longer hours to the neglect of your family and your church so that you would complete what Jesus is lacking. You see, that's the point. The point is this, that Jesus is insufficient. He is weak. You need to complete what he's lacking. So what do you have to do? You have to fill your heart with other stuff. All the while, Paul was incarcerated in Rome. He's held captive against his will, a prisoner. If you recall, Epaphras, that faithful servant, he's the founder of the church of Colossae. He's the evangelist of this church. As soon as he uh, began to realize this uh, threat, he took this news and he flew to Rome. That figuratively speaking, there was no planes back then, right? He went to Rome. He informed Paul of this alarming danger that was pressing hard on his simple flock. And what did Paul do? Paul picked up his pen and paper, got them handy, and with every stroke in this letter, his intention was absolutely clear. What was Paul's intention? To magnify, to exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Let me break down the chapters for you quickly. Chapter 1, Christ's supremacy revealed. 
Chapter 2, Christ's supremacy defended. Chapter 3 and 3, 3 and 4, Christ's supremacy lived out. In fact, in the middle of chapter 1, Paul wrote an ancient hymn that has the approval of his apostolic authority. And this hymn runs from verse 15 all the way down to verse 20, and its main theme is this. Jesus may have the preeminence over all and above all. In fact, let me show you one more time. I've gone through this before, but I want to do it one more time. I want to show you how Christ exalting his hymn is. I want to read it to you. However, I want to change and insert the name Jesus in every personal pronoun that is referring to him. From verses 15 to verse 20. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. Verse 18, Jesus is also head of the body, the church, and Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that Jesus himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in whom? Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through Jesus, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. False teachers. You cannot be any more wrong. Jesus is all sufficient. Why is he all sufficient? Well, we just read. Because Jesus is a creator. He is God. Jesus is eternal. He's a sustainer of all things. He is the Lord and Savior of his people. In other words, he has matchless beauty. Unequaled power unrivaled authority. So without apologies and with all boldness, we say to those false teachers and to everyone in this room, whether unbelievers or believers, angels or demons, Jesus is all sufficient in all aspects of life. No matter the severity of our trial irrespective of, of the sin that is bearing heavy upon your, your conscience and the guilt that is crushing you. Whether there are financial, relational, spiritual crisis, Jesus, the Son of God, is all you need. And then, moving on, Paul pulls back that curtain from our eyes. 
And we discover that this all-sufficient Savior lives where? In our hearts, in us. Is there anything better to hear than this? He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We can consciously enjoy his presence 24-7. We can delight in possessing him. We can celebrate the fact that he possesses us. He lives within us. Then, like Jesus said before, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, we are to proclaim him and him alone. Paul tells us. We proclaim him to our children. We proclaim him to our spouses, to our friends. Not just inside this building, outside, on the streets, at schools, at unis, at work. We are to proclaim him. Then finally, last week, we saw how we proclaim him. We proclaim him laboring, agonizing. That is to say, we proclaim Christ even to the point of exhaustion. While we're carrying our crosses in our shoulders, we push against rejections. We push against disappointments. Always pressing towards the upward calling. We never give up. We never surrender. Until what? Until every man values, thoughts, actions are dipped in Christ, ruled by Christ, dedicated to Christ. We proclaim Him. How do we do this? How? How do we face trials, hardship, and yet work to the point of fatigue, stretching ourselves even to the limits? For Christ to be proclaimed. Answer that we found last week. In that very last verse of the last chapter of the first chapter. Knowing Christ in you intimately is like an explosion of energy. And is bursting in the chest of every believer. That realizes the value of having that Christ in you. For Paul, it meant that there was supernatural, omnipotent, divine power that was surging surging through his veins. So allowing him to agonize, but not grow weary. Or like he says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, that he would be hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. The power of of God in the soul of man. This is it. This is our secret of endurance. And then, today, in this passage, Paul moves from the general to the specific, from the abstract kind of general agonizing to the real hardcore example. And first point is Paul's struggle for the saints. And we read the first sentence. It says, For 
I want you to know. Once again, it's three-letter word for links between what Paul just said and this passage. In other words, when Paul says for, I want you to know, what he's saying is I'm telling you about the constant, non-ending labor and striving by the mighty power of God. Precisely because I want to tell you this. Tell us what? How great a struggle I have on your behalf. Paul here is modeling for us what the life that is spent for the Lord looks like. The kind of struggle that any man, any woman that wants to live for God would have to experience. This word struggle, Paul uses here again the, the noun agon where we get the word agony from. So that imagery that we spoke about last week about the Olympic athlete hasn't gone away yet. Still there is this athlete pushing hard in his intense training. This athlete that is determined to run faster, harder and longer, sweating, toiling while exposed to heat, perhaps Bleeding because he's, he's running on bare feet like they used to 2,000 years ago on hard ground. And Paul is capturing this imagery and he's personalizing it to himself in that word struggle. And not just struggle. Now he's going further and beyond that. Look what he says. He says how great a struggle. Great agon, agonizing greatly, I have on your behalf. I have deep concern. I have, I have been severely troubled for you, Colossians. Then he widens the circle, and now he includes those who are a Laodicea. And he gives just a, a catch-all phrase, and he says, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Now, it doesn't obviously here mean the entire world, even 2,000 years later. That's not really what he means here. What he means here by saying not personally seen my face is that those, those believers in that region that were under the attack of false teachers. And why is he saying not personally seen my face. We've looked at this before. Let me remind you, because Paul did not plant those churches. He didn't. And other than Epaphras and Philemon, Philemon, by the way, he was a Colossian member. Other than these two and perhaps a few others, Paul has never seen the Colossians. He had no idea who, what they looked like, he never visited their churches or their neighboring cities, and yet he deeply, he was deeply in anguish for them. Why is that? How is it that a Jew would have such intense emotion for a group of Gentiles that he never met? You see, Paul's stony heart was radically replaced with a new Christ-like heart. 
a heart that now beats with care and love for the Christians. You see, those Gentiles have Christ in them, just like he does. Christ shed his blood for them. He loves them. They are precious to him. And, uh, And the heart that loves Jesus also loves whom Christ loves. And now the fact that they're under attack by savage wolves. Paul's heart is like a heart of a shepherd. His hands are tied behind his back. He wished he would go and save them from those false teachers. Paul Paul is like a, a prisoner of war and he's chained up in that prison cell. But his mind, his, his heart are with that unit of soldiers. And he's suffering severe anguish because he's wondering how are they going in that war zone, in that battlefield. In short, Paul's heart was full of God's love, full of concern for those Christians. And you can just imagine when he's writing struggle and it wouldn't be far-fetched to think of Paul now in that prison cell and he has sleepless nights. He's tossing and, and turning and he's grieving for those Colossians. Why is it important to understand this, brothers? This is how the heart that cares and for the, for the brothers and sisters reacts in the face of deception and false teaching. This is important for us so that we would know that, that, that this is a great example for us to follow when we see other Christians under that spell and drawn away from Christ. Oh, how we ought to struggle for those Christians and grieve for them like Paul did. Now, please note, let's, let's go further and beyond this. This is not enough. Because Paul's struggle wasn't just limited, just feeling. Feeling anguish. This word for means he's strongly, strongly linking what we spoke about in verse 29 and the last chapter with, with this verse, verse 1. In other words, that struggle contains in it the laboring and striving actively worked for them to the point of fatigue. How did he do that? He's imprisoned in Rome. That's hundreds of miles away from the church of Colossae. He couldn't speak a word to them. And you're telling me that he worked hard for them? How do you propose that he did that? Well, he did, this, he did write this letter to them, didn't he? He labored. He labored, proclaiming Christ to them, not verbally, but writing a letter. If there is a will, there is a way. You show me a man who loves and cares for people around him, and I will show you a man who will labor and strive, no matter what. Ah, oh, but I'm but I'm weak. I'm I'm old. I'm too tired. I can't write the way Paul writes. I can't speak the way Paul spoke. Let me let me show you another way Paul labored to the point of fatigue. 
for those Colossians. Let me show you. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Now pay attention to this. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Prayer, prayer. And I propose to you that it's not only Epaphras who labored in prayer, because we read in Colossians 1 verse 3, Paul says, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying what? Always for you. Always for you. Yes, Paul was in prison. Yes, he never saw their faces. But Paul didn't roll like an eggplant on, on his bed and counted sheep or played crosswords. No. What was he doing? On his knees, with one hand holding on to God, and the other hand holding on to those Christians, and he doesn't want to let them go. And he was wrestling with God in his prayer, pleading with God to protect them. He, he fought against demons in that prison cell, he fought against laziness. He, he didn't crawl into his cell, sucking his thumb, licking his wound, saying, oh, it's not fair. I'm in prison unfairly. No. Brothers, Paul was selfless, right? He was outward focused, others focused. The love of Christ, he tells us, compelled him to do that. What about us? Are we struggling in our prayers for the brethren? What about us, brothers and sisters? We are the uh, Paul and the Epaphras of this church. We are the men who hold on to the throne of mercy. The women who, who would be pleading with God for the, for the brethren to be protected, to be strengthened. Paul here is inviting us to follow his footsteps. He's calling us to, to fling away our selfishness, to, to live to the glory of God by interceding for the brethren. And I pray every soul in this room as it reads through Paul and what he did, that there would say, this soul would say, God, let me be that man of prayer for my brothers and sisters. Well, that's for Paul. What about us? Our love for the saints. That's number two. Our love for the saints. Now, prayer is struggling, right? For those of us who pray, you know, it's struggle to continue to concentrate, to, to not be distracted. It is a struggle. How do we do this? How do we organize like that? Well, didn't he already say by God's power? Yes, he did. 
In fact, that's why in his prayer, he says in verse 2, and let me read, that their hearts may be encouraged. This word encouraged is, can be translated to the word to be strengthened, to be empowered. And that heart is not feeling. It's far more than feelings. It's about the mind, the affection, the will. It's the entire personhood. It's who you are from the inside. What Paul is saying in verse 2 here is that I am agonizing on your behalf for the entire personhood to be empowered, to be strengthened by God. Well, one would say, well, great, that's wonderful. I'm going to capitalize on that power. What are you going to do? Well, all I need is Christ in me. That's what you said last week. That's what makes perfect sense to me. Because Jesus is the hope of glory, this is wonderful. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go home, I'm going to close myself in my study room, and I'm going to reflect on all who Christ is in me. I'm going to open a systematic theology and a couple of other books and just reflect until I get these goosebumps. And when I get these goosebumps, ah, I'm, I'm going to be strengthened, right? Obviously, you can tell from the way I'm speaking, it's wrong. No, that's not how we're going to be strengthened. What, what, what do you mean? Are, are, are you saying that knowing Christ is not enough for me? You're going to be a false teacher now. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. Yes, to know Christ is all you need. But you can't know him all on your own. You can't. Knowing Jesus Christ fully is a community project. We have to get this. You cannot live in a little island on your own and think, wow, I'll get to know Jesus. Or how many Christians after COVID that we heard have flown to the mountains, flown to somewhere and they drew for themselves a little island thinking that they will be strengthened. That's all that they need, Jesus, and all, it, and all it is, and that's all. I feel so terribly sorry, brothers and sisters, for those who do not get the fact Jesus, to know him, is a community project. It's almost offensive, is it not? Where do you get this from? You know what I get it from? I'll just read the text. I'll just read the text. Just keep it simple. That their hearts may be encouraged. How? Having been knit together in love. Having been knit together in love. This is how you'll be strengthened. This is how you'll be encouraged. Now, you won't see this in your Bible unless you go into the Greek, but these four words, having been knit together, is actually one word. It's held together. It's, that's what the word is. It's been pulled together. It's like a thread that is interwoven in and through each other, and by being interwoven, it creates a strong fabric. That's the idea here. 
So also are those believers in Colossians. Paul is struggling for them to have their lives interwoven in and through each other's. To have this organic fabric, this strong unity in the bond of love. Brothers, this is how you're going to be strengthened with might. When we become channels interlocked together so that the riches of the glory of Jesus, like electricity, would surge and flow through you, to you, and, and from you, to you, and from you to me and through me to everybody. So Christ will be through all and in all as we're growing in love for one another. That's the point here. You see how important it is to be knit together in love. I want to tell you that this love for one another, for the believers in this community, is so central to our worship of God. This is why Paul says it is a fulfillment of the law. It is part of the greatest command. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, please? I want to show you how significant it is in our walk with God to love one another. How important it is to have this bond of love. Now, I do want to ask you this question. I know it seems to be silly, but there's a reason why I want to ask you that question. What Bible translation do you have? NASB, New American Standard Bible. That's the one that we read from. Well, I want to tell you I have a better translation with me here. I'm going to read from it. You know what translation it is that I have? No, it's not Legacy Standard Bible. Even better than that. Hey? Sam's version. Well, I'll call it Saving Grace Standard Bible. Okay? S-G-S-B. Saving Grace Standard Bible. There is only one edition and there is only one copy. And I'm sorry, I've I've got this copy here. Okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it in NASB, the first three verses. I'm going to read to you this translation, a Saving Grace Standard Bible translation. Okay? Verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. And by the way, 1 Corinthians is written, and what Paul has in mind is the love for the church, for one another. Okay? He doesn't have the love for the lost here. He doesn't have love for uh, my wife and my children, although that's important, but that's not what he has in mind here. Okay, just keep that Make sure this is clear. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. That's what it says in your translation, right? Let me read to you the Saving Grace Standard Bible, since all of you are eager to know what it says. If I'm part of the praise and music team, and I sing really well, Or if I'm so gifted in playing all instruments, piano, guitar, or anything else, but do not have love for the brethren around me, I am noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2. If I have 
the gift of prophecy. And all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Saving Grace, Standard Bible. If I read the Bible in context, and I understand all the hermeneutic rules, the cause and the effect, the figure of speech, the meaning and application. And if I have all faith and discernment so I can discern false doctrine, but I have no interest, no care for the need of my brothers in Christ, I am what? Nothing. Verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burnt, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Saving Grace translation, if I give weekly offering to the church, and I give myself to many different ministries, be it preparing meals for Sunday, Sunday morning and door knocking ministry, Sunday school ministry, or all kinds of administration. But I do not have love for God's people whom he died for. To find out their needs. If I'm not moved, laboring, striving to meet those needs, if I don't love them, how much do I gain? Nothing. I gain nothing. Zilch. I told you my, my translation is better than yours. This, this knit together in love. It blows out of the water the false trinity of Christian living that says, ah, oh, me, my Jesus, and my family. Right? It takes a lot more than sitting in a room together in order to have this kind of love. It takes a lot more than just sitting down and listening to a sermon or singing a few songs. Do we understand what it means to be knit together in love? It means that we've got to bear each other's burden, to care for one another, to be hospitable to one another, to forgive one another, to serve and be served by one another. Yes, this kind of love is hard work. Yes, it does demand self-denial, self-sacrifice. Nobody said that living Christian life God's way is going to be easy road. But look at the outcome. Look at the outcome, brothers. We'll come to the third point. The result of loving the saints. Look what it says. And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Well, so big it takes a whole sermon, if not more, to unravel this sentence alone. There is wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding the outcome of this. In a nutshell, what it's saying is this. 
as we interlock arm to arm, heart to heart, we will together have such strength of mind, affection, and will that we will have full assurance. Full assurance that is strong, deep conviction of what? Of understanding. Understanding what exactly? Understanding what? What is a strong conviction of? Everything to do with who Christ is, who is in you. Where do you get that from? I'm just making it easy for you to understand, but this is where I get it from. You know how I get it from? It's not complicated. You just read the text. So we'll continue reading. And it says this, resulting. You can't get any simpler than that, right? Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. The ultimate outcome of this kind of love is true knowledge. Not not head knowledge. You you can get head knowledge if you read a book. You can go to a library and, and read a book and you have a head knowledge. No, this is experiential, intimate knowledge of who? What does it say? Of God's mystery. That is who? Christ. True knowledge. Of Christ himself. Again, in this passage, you can read it carefully again. What will this do? It will make you attain all the wealth that comes from this. All the wealth that comes from true knowledge. What does it mean, all the wealth? Does that mean you're going to go to your common wealth bank and you have a look and you find you, you, you're rich financially? Absolutely not. Look at Paul in prison. All wealth, what does this mean? It means you will feel as though you're so rich, better than Bill Gates. You will feel sorry of how poor Bill Gates is. You'll be so content. So satisfied in Christ such that, that your heart would say, i got nothing and yet Jesus is enough for me. That's the old wealth. And you say, yes, amen to that. Amen to that? So again, how do we, how are we going to be strengthened against the lies of the world, against the false teaching that says Jesus is not enough? It is when we are giving to this commitment. Do you know, loving a brethren is far more than feelings. We get this, right? I hope we all get this. It's a commitment before it's a feeling. Commitment that compels each one of us to make sacrifices for the sake of everyone else. And we have to going to make time to build relationships with brothers that we think are boring. And we're going to have to come out of our comfort zone, trample over our awkwardness. And we're going to have to bear with the weak of the weak. And we're going to have to serve selfish 
sisters in Christ. None of us are perfect, meaning everyone is sinful. And as we are serving and we get offended, guess what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to be forgiving to our brothers who sin against us. Why? Because that's the only way that we're going to have strong conviction of who Christ is. That conviction will grow stronger and the knowledge of Christ will be far more intimate than ever before. This is God's ordained way, brothers and sisters, for us to know the fullness of Christ. It is not done apart from the brothers. No, it is done through loving the brethren. It's God's word. Well, how do we do this? We'll come to the conclusion now. And if you know me long enough, you know I'm, please forgive me, I'm hardwired this way by profession, I'm an engineer. And so always when I read a passage, um, I, I just ask so many questions. You probably can tell from the number of questions in my sermon. And so when I read this, I say, okay, great. I understand, I submit, I yield my life to what the word of God says, but I want to know a little bit more. I just want to know a bit more. I want to know what is the connection. What is the connection between loving the brethren and resulting in the true knowledge of Christ. Why is it so? Well, it takes a, it takes a whole sermon yet again to answer that question, but I'm just going to quickly share something with you as a way of conclusion so we know how we apply this in our lives. John chapter 14, verse 21. By the way, John chapter 14 Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before his death and resurrection. And he is so focused on that one thing. And you know what it is? Love for one another. Love. You've got to love one another. You want me to hear your prayers? You've got to love one another. You want to do it? You've got to love one another. And then he says in John 14 verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him. And I will what? Disclose myself to him. Keeping Christ's commandments. And namely, and primarily in this passage, you can go ahead and read it for yourself, is the love for the brethren results in disclosing himself to us. What does that mean, disclosing? Meaning further revelation of the Savior to the eyes of our heart. It means deeper fellowship with him. A greater exposure to his glory. A sweeter taste to the beautiful satisfaction that we have in him. This is what Jesus is actually saying in this verse. Brothers, do we have any better incentive for our effort to love the brethren? Than when we forsake our self-pity. 
that when we follow Christ in obedience to this great command, and then what happens? We get to enjoy more of Him. Christ, who is far more esteemed than anything else that is most more valuable. There's nothing more satisfying than Christ Himself. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, as we're faithfully loving one another, we are actually revealing more glimpses of Jesus. What do I mean by that? We are the body of Christ, right? We are the body of Christ. Here is a sister who needs forgiveness. Here is a brother who needs encouragement. Or another person who needs physical needs. And as we are laying down our lives, serving one another, Every member who is served would take a good look at the Christ-like character in you and would say, oh, how humble is Jesus. How loving, how gentle, how gracious is Jesus. That Jesus, through his body, takes care of the hurting, of the broken. What do you mean? Oh, brother, thank you. Thank you. Why do you thank me? Well, you just have revealed to me when I am discouraged how that Jesus actually loves me. A glimpse. And then, as we continue to do that, our full assurance of Christ, the fact that he is sufficient, will become like, a, like an anchor that, that plunges deep into the ocean. That through loving one another, our unyielding belief that Jesus loves us will stand strong against the current of the waves of, of those false teaching and the lies of the world. The lies that constantly whisper in our ears that Jesus is not enough. Brothers, when we have those waves coming at us, battering and beating against the ship of our lives. And because we are committed to love one another in this way, we are unmoved, unshaken, solid in Christ. Why? I'll tell you why. Because no matter how fierce that storm that of, of, of confusion and doubt rages against us, here is a man that is willing to teach us. Here is another woman who is willing to encourage us. And there is a person out there that wants to admonish us and warn us and love us by helping us and serve us and counsel us. You won't find that outside. You find it here among your brethren. And then what would happen is that we will remain unswerving, unchanging, unbreakable in, in what? In our unwavering view of who Christ is to us. Amen? Again, I say to you, brothers and sisters, let it sink deep into your hearts. Knowing Jesus Christ is a community project. What do we do about this? I want to urge you, fight against this reluctance 
to love the person sitting in front of you and behind you. Be compelled with this motivation. When you're tempted to live in your own little island and you don't feel like loving your brethren, reason with yourself. Preach to yourself this truth. What truth? That all selfishness and self-pity will get you nowhere. And that to be knit together in love, it will bring deeper revelation of Jesus, who is our greatest joy, right? He's our greatest pleasure, the greatest satisfaction that your heart could ever experience. This is why we're going to say we're going to be knit together in love with people of different colors, different accents, different language, different backgrounds, and we're going to be one because we are sold out to this one thing, to know Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord. These words are not just written 2,000 years ago to a group of Christians that are perhaps far removed from us. Here we are today, and it cannot be any more relevant. Jesus is wonderful. He is awesome. He is enough. He is enough in every aspect in life. And Lord, if what it takes to know that wonderful Jesus is to lay down our lives for one another, would you give us the willingness to walk this road? That road of denying ourselves because we know at the end we will know him who loved us and died for us. And at the end we will say we have the better end of the bargain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.